Welcome to Unexpressed, where we put words to the inexpressible. My name is David White, and I'm the publisher at Whitefire. Over the years, I've had the privilege and opportunity to work with some really amazing people, very talented authors mostly, who have a unique view of the world. Our focus has been on the things that are important and challenging, viewed through the lens of storytelling. Our readers and our listeners are a part of that process. So if you're like us and you're looking for a podcast that will challenge you and encourage you to challenge yourself, you've come to the right place. Today we're continuing our series in what makes good stories that are worth reading. This is episode three, so if you haven't listened to the other episodes, go back and listen to those first. Today we're going to be discussing empathy, one of the most important aspects in storytelling. All right, so last time we talked about things like evil in the story, a villain, character, different kinds of characters, basically. And uh, one of the things that we we touched on quite a bit, but never really were explicit about was really getting to know villains and sort of, I guess, what that means. Mm-hmm. I guess it always goes beyond just the villains too, right? Like you need to get to know all of your characters. So, but maybe we should start with getting to know villains and why... Why getting in their head is so powerful, I guess, might be the best way to put it. Yeah, that's a good word. I was going to say important, but I like powerful better. Um, I think because in order for a villain to be really terrifying, you have to look at them and almost see yourself in them. You have to you have to look at them and think, what keeps me from walking that path? What keeps me from being like that? Or at least I think that's the most effective villain. I think far too often the villains that we see are are almost caricatures. Like, you know they're evil. You know you're rooting against them. There's no question about that. But I think the real, the real power, the real trick comes in when you look at them and you hate their choices and you understand them. Yeah, in the mid- middle of you saying that, I was thinking, how much of yourself should you see? in in a character in general, but in a villain in particular? Hopefully not too much, right? Um, I, I don't want to think I have too awful much in, in common with a villain, but I think... In well, a- but sometimes the thing that makes a person a villain is a very small, potentially sliver of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's almost like, what what's that saying that we share how much DNA with ridiculous things like a housefly and, yeah. you know... Things like, obviously, that's not me, but there's this commonality of life. And I think, obviously, it's even more more so when you're talking about other, person. other people, right? Right, like... Humanity. You know, you, you, I've heard people say things like, you know, um, this particular villain had a good family, you know, both parents were there, they had a loving relationship, they came from, you know, middle or upper class. Like, there's... They had all the advantages... And in some ways are like the best of the people in our society. They didn't have any, you know, because it's easy to write a villain that's like, yes, you know, he was in a single fam, single parent family and his father abused him or, you know. Right. Suffered some traumatic incident. Right. That, yeah, that broke him. Right. Yeah. But the other kind is like, he's really just like me. Right. Yeah. Those are the ones that. I mean, especially like in contemporary stories, you see where, you know, they're in some branch of law enforcement or whatever, and they just made that one bad choice to protect their family or provide for their family above the noble thing. You know, like 
you know, they, they get in with the, the drug runners or whatever because it's this one windfall that will set up their family. And that's a choice that you always think I won't make, but that's what they thought too. And you can you can see that. You can see that they just took one misstep and they kind of tumbled down, you know? Yeah, so I guess what is that? I mean, I guess we're dancing around the, the term a little bit empathy, right? Like, <laughs> is it good to have empathy for evil? Or is it natural? Okay, well, the way you phrase that makes me want to say, no, of course not. But here's the thing. Evil is not a person. Should we have empathy for a villain? Yes. Should we have empathy for evil? Like capital E, evil? No. But no one person, I would say, is evil because that means they'd be beyond redemption. Right. Well, that's an interesting thing. And I've touched on this in other places and it seems to come up as a theme. But like, I think a lot of people are even tempted to like have empathy for demons, right? That might tread on some dangerous ground. <laughs> well, like, but I think that the reason you can't, because once they've made a choice, they can't unmake it. Right. right? They like, cannot be redeemed. Yeah. They don't have the power. They're never going to choose not to be demons. Right. Um, you know, people might have empathy for, you know, Judas. That one's a little more understandable. But that might be a really good example in some ways, right? Like... He had all the benefits that so many people say, if I only could have just been. If I just could have walked with Jesus. Yeah, my life would be. Right. I would be, you know, I would be dot, 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 fill in the good thing here. <laughs> but you've got a one out of 12 chance of being Judas, apparently. <laughs> one out of 12. <laughs> well, maybe not quite that. But you certainly understand him differently. Yeah. And you realize that no good experience is ever going to keep you from being the villain unfortunately yeah that's sadly true which that might hit on a little bit about something we'll touch on in a little bit which is why we have to make maybe not today but we have to make good choices as people right right oh uh, you know what are some of the things that, not that we're particularly wanting to keep talking about villains but what are the some of the things that make a villain a villain sometimes i think that it's isolation mm -hmm. not being around well, anyway, I don't know that we want to go there. So what about other characters? Like, you know, obviously you want to write a character that you can empathize with that's a villain. Yeah. But even more so, you want to write a hero that people can empathize with. Now, why would you want that? Because <laughs> if you can't really identify with the main characters in a book, you're not really going to read it. But that's also the amazing power of story, right? Is they can put before you people who seemingly are nothing like you and enable you to see that common thread of humanity in them, enable right. you to see them as someone like me. And I think that that's getting maybe a little bit out ahead of what I'm, where I'm looking to go, but let, we'll go there in a minute. But is like for you, you could write a hero and it would be a pretty, you know, slam dunkish, you know, uh, American Protestant white woman who has a series of accidents that occur, you know, that make things interesting. You run into Jason Bourne and... <laughs> and your life goes haywire. <laughs> right. But you could look at that and go, that could be me. Right. You never know who might accost me in the parking lot. Yeah. So, but I mean, like, there is that tendency. And I think that an awful lot of stories are written sort of in that way, right? Like, yeah, lots of romances focus around... 
at the very least, the person that people want to think of themselves as, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. Like, you know, uh, people want to think of themselves as young and attractive and desirable. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the funny thing is, though, you also get a lot of people who get frustrated with certain genres because they don't see people like them as as the heroines. They're always, you know, young, gorgeous millionaires. And come on, who lives that life, right? Um, so, yeah, so there's always that that desire to see a, a hero or a heroine like you, that you can imagine yourself cast in that role. Well, and I think that people might get frustrated with that in particular because – that person is obviously better than me, (laughs) right? Like, I wonder if there's something to being aspirational on one hand, but being accessible, right? For for example, you know, Orson Scott Card always writes these main characters who are brilliant or gifted in some particular way. Right. And I think that that's something that's sort of aspirational for an awful lot of people, right? Like, no one wants to think of themselves as dumb as a (laughs) a rock. Box of rocks. Box of rocks, a box of rocks. Um, Speaking of intelligence now. <laughs> and, you know, no one wants to think of themselves as untalented or ungifted. So that right. makes it easy to be aspirational. Yeah, especially when it's something that the character has to discover in themselves in the course of the book. Because then, of course, you go, what hidden talent do I have that just hasn't been tapped yet? Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's... Well, I'm never going to be a billionaire. <laughs> You're right. And but... I'm never going to be a six foot four Aww, supermodel. Man. Yeah. And I'm never going to dot, dot, dot. Right? right. Like when you make them so out of hand yes. and out of reach, that can be frustrating. It can still be sort of escapism, right? Right. It can be entertaining. But the fact is still that my father is not a duke. Right. And uh, yeah. Like, we can pretend to that kind of thing. Like, I think that that's why some people like to go on vacation to places like Las Vegas, right? Because it's so over the top. That you can just pretend. You can just pretend that this world is normal for a couple of days. Yeah. That, you know, everyone waits on you hand and foot and all that glitters is gold. Even if it's plastic. (laughs) But... But yeah, that only lasts so long and that only digs so deep, right? Like, no one... When you really look at the lives of these people, no one probably really ever aspires to be a person who works in a casino. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure maybe there are casino workers out there saying, no, it's a great job and I love my life. Um, but, you know, like I, I imagine, you know, the the main villain from the first Ocean's Eleven movie, right? Like probably most people don't live that life, you know, with the shades and the cool clothes and yeah the attitude and you know everything about everything well and not even like aspire to like the person who has that job you know probably wears a suit and spends a lot of time looking at numbers (laughs) and it's probably really boring not suave (laughs) you know julia roberts is not his girlfriend (laughs) i I could again i could be wrong if you're listening and you're a casino executive feel free to set me straight (laughs) but yeah but there's a limit to how far that fantasy can pay out right so what do we want to see then? What makes us connect with with a main character? I mean, I think it's it's something that we see in them that is a mirror of ourselves, but also it's seeing something in them that maybe you haven't ever even fully understood in yourself. I mean, the 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 stories whether they be in film or in book 
that always really grab me and really jump out at me and kind of hold me captive while I'm reading and then never totally leave me are the ones that show me something new about my, my own heart, about my own soul that I hadn't realized was there, but which was there the whole time. Right. And I, so is that because you're similar and you can relate or is that something past that? Is that, is that, getting into the power of what empathy can do for you, which is where you were going a minute ago. Right. Well, yeah, I don't know where, where the line is between those really, but. So maybe, maybe lay out the, the other side of the equation. So you have created a character that, that you can relate to. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're, you know, I don't know, short with curly hair and a little overweight, right? Like, okay, that may it's be a bad example, but approachable. Right. Or, you know, self-conscious about something or, or just that you can see yourself in. Mm -hmm. So you create a person with something like that. Now throw something else at it. Right. Like now discover that they are. Like they have a struggle or they find themselves in this situation or. I was aiming more like, here's a huge way they're different. Ah, yeah. Like. I don't know, maybe they have, um, I don't know, maybe they have MS or something. Sure. Yeah. Well, and that's, or maybe that's not a great example, but well, something but like something that. Something that, you know, as an author, I can I tend to think of it as a character quirk, um, <laughs> no matter how big it is. Sometimes it's something little, like, you know, they have a, a nervous tick. Sometimes they have a stutter. Sometimes, you know, they're borderline autistic. And that's a little more than a quirk, you know. Um, But it's something that makes them unique. It makes the character unique. It's who they are. But it's also what what draws me in because it makes me see something new. It makes me see a new dimension. And generally, even if it's not something that I personally empathize with or sympathize with in that I don't have it, I don't relate on a personal level, it will show me how to relate to people who are like that. And I mean, the examples I was thinking of, and I don't know if this is going exactly where you're wanting to go, so feel free to rein me back in. Um, But thinking of some of the books I read as a preteen and young teenager that obviously shaped how I thought, a lot of them um, were set on the prairie. So there were a lot of Native Americans. And the way these books dealt with it painted them all in a very real light in a very human light they were not you know bad guys or good guys they were just people and you got to know them and it it painted this wonderful you know kind of realistic world where history is your backdrop but it also makes you see that no matter if they come from a wildly different culture and no matter whether the you know the the white culture at the time thought of them a certain way they're still people and that teaches me to view them as people And then I remember um, years later watching some classic Western movie. I don't even remember which one it was. I just remember that there was, um, you know, a Native American character who came on the screen and immediately he was the bad guy. He was the villain. You shot him because he was an Indian, you know, and there was and I was just shocked because I was thinking, but but all he wanted was to rescue his sister. You know, this isn't a bad guy, but the movie treated him as a bad guy because of you know, his culture. So just thinking of the power of, of story to do that, to make you, to make you draw the lines and decide who to empathize with and how to empathize with them. 
Um, so I don't know that that, that, that really addresses what you were getting well, but that's, at. But... That's interesting, though, because what that shows you is the culture has a power to write a particular story, but the story has a particular power to do the opposite, right? Exactly. Like, if you take and turn that on its head... Uh, the example I was thinking about as you were talking about Native American culture was Bonnie Leon's... 100 100, <laughs> lots, lots and lots of valleys. 100 valleys. <laughs> um, but one of the things that you see is you have generally, you know, white characters who are in their time. And you have the native related character, sort of, anyway, that we can empathize more with because we're not in their time, right? Right. So yeah. in some ways, we're more judgmental of people who are more like us. Right. We're more judgmental of the white settlers right. than we are of the natives. But we're also inclined to, because we do share a common culture with them, you know, 1860, for all its differences between, I don't know if it was 18th, you know, 19th century, for all its differences, we do share a common history. Mm-hmm. We are, you know, do tend to be, you know, European. We do tend to have lots of connections. So we're also simultaneously reading those characters going, yeah, but they're like me. And they have this bias. Right. That I don't have now. Right. (laughs) Or I don't think I have now. Well, and that's the thing, right? Is it changes the way you think about your current. Right. Which is why I think one of the most interesting and most effective ways to handle situations like that. And obviously not every character in a book can do this, but is the character who starts as just a typical in their time character like me, who then through the course of the story kind of has to arrive at a deeper understanding. Because if it's done well, not only does that allow you to, you know, quote unquote, forgive them for their cultural bias of their day, but it also can really help uncover our own cultural biases that we're blind to just as they were blind to. So it, it can be such a powerful tool to dig, to, to really dig below the surface and help us to see where we're like them, where we don't want to be. Right. Because we're not fundamentally all that different. No. Right. Like <laughs> People don't change. <laughs> right. People are the same. We're going to resurrect the same kinds of biases and the same kinds of blindnesses over and over we just put different faces on them different faces different you know theories some things you know some things you might actually get beyond they're you know sure maybe not entirely I don't know. maybe I they s- take different I forms i still think it, most things just morph but yeah well I, yeah morph is probably a good word like you know um i was thinking like most people don't believe in fairies anymore Well. Except in Ireland. (laughs) I was going to say, in America. (laughs) But we believe in other things, right? Like we've replaced that need for something with something different. Right. So. Yeah. And take, you know, whether fairies are real or not. I'm not going to (laughs) draw. I'm not going to come to a conclusion. But generally speaking, you know, most, you know, Western American people not with a spiritual background are going to dismiss those as. Fairy tales. Stories, fairy yeah. tales. Ah, fairy tales. Yeah. Ha, ha. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking, instead, we've replaced it with quantum mechanics, which we understand just as little. <laughs> and it is in some ways just as magical. In a lot of ways, just as magical. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's science, so it's therefore, you know, feels higher than a fairy story. 
Well, it might be higher, but again, you have to recognize your biases, right? Yeah. At what point are you making a religion out of something? Yeah. That probably oughtn't be made a religion out of. <laughs> Very true. Uh, yeah, the book that we just finished, this is entirely off subject. So, you know, for what it's worth, but it was talking about one of the quotes. I wish I remembered who it was from. So I would just quote him, but was talking about how um, atheists are just about, tr- you know, as close as you're ever going to get to a true, you know, faithful fanatic as you can find. Because it's, you know, it's not like they doubt. They have absolute certainty. They just have absolute certainty in a negative. Right. So. But that requires just as much faith. <laughs> or. Well, yeah, I, I'm butchering the whole thing and I'm not going to get the quote right. So, but it was an interesting, it was something that someone had noted and it, I wish I remembered who it was. It was, it was probably someone like Lenin or Trotsky, <laughs> you know. Who knows? I don't Just know. talking about the types of people that you can potentially recruit, like uh, that an atheist is potentially a really good recruit for Christianity because they believe in something very, very strongly right. as a person, as opposed to a person who really doesn't care about anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to follow this rabbit trail down too far, but that is really interesting because something I've heard different interviews with different atheists, what I've heard them say is they look to their their examples, their role models, and say, well, they didn't believe in anything. They were an atheist. So if they were an atheist, I should be too, which is, you know, dangerous. But it's that whole, you know, you want to belong to something. You want to belong to this class of people. And you think they're the best class of people. Yeah, obviously. And if you changed your mind, all of a sudden, now you would be something different. Right. Which might be one of the things you can do with empathy and storytelling to try to come back. That's a way to pull it back in. So another cool part about empathy and storytelling, like we've been sort of, we've been trying to almost make it formulaic, which is, well, you create a character that is like me in some way, and then you give them something that's not like you. And, you know, voila, we (laughs) understand them. You take them on a journey to understanding, yeah. But there's another side that says... This is one of the cool powers of storytelling is I can throw you into a character that's entirely different from you. Um, you know, I can drop you into a character who is a, you know, Chinese farmer somewhere, you know. Hey, I've read that book. In in rural place. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe you should pick Pearl it up. Pearl S. Buck. What okay. Was, what was the name? The Good Earth. Yes. Rural Chinese farmer. Right. So now you're in that world. Right. You know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. But just being in their head, just being in their story, sort of the willingness to read it creates a connection with them that you didn't get otherwise. Yeah. You don't want to talk about it at all? Just, <laughs> was, yep, that's was, true. Uh-huh, You're that's right. so true. I was waiting for you to say something else. You usually end with a question. Well. <laughs> yeah, but so, and that, that again is the power of storytelling because when we pick up a book or you turn on the television to watch something... We talk a lot about suspension of disbelief, where you're willing to say, okay, so, you know, maybe we're not really living in space, but I can I can accept the premise. When you shoot a car's gas tank, it doesn't really explode. But it makes for good television, so I'll accept it. Or, you know, whatever whatever the thing is that we would normally disbelieve, we're willing to suspend that for the sake of a good story. But I think that it, the same principle applies to other other parts of the story as well, and characters... And cultures are are a perfect example. 
So when you pick up that book, you are willing to put aside your world and enter theirs, whatever it might be. You are willing to put aside almost me, who I am, coming to this book and become, for the hours that you read it, that character. So so when it's a character totally right, and that, to let you, me just interrupt for a second. Like that's why people like it so much as escapism, right? Because it's escapism for the, for those hours. I am not me, and this is not my world. Right. I, so anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think that yeah, no, that's that's fine. So so yeah, so that's that's the really remarkable thing is that for that time when I'm reading that book, I am that poor rural farmer in China, and I am really concerned about the fact that my pot broke. And I need clay to fix it. Even though if my pot breaks, I toss it out and go buy a new one. Why do I have a clay pot in the first place? (laughs) Yeah. And so it's just, it's this remarkable thing because it's a wonderful method of teaching, which is, you know, why I read this book in school. Um, But it's so effective because it becomes real to you. Like, had I had a history lesson on life in rural China in the 1800s And why clay pots are so important. It means very little to me, right? But I can still tell you so much about that novel I read in eighth grade because it became real to me and it mattered. And the characters mattered and their their lives mattered to me. Even though it was so far removed, it made me see that those people that had very little in common with me on a cultural level still had something very much in common with me in their hearts. Yeah, and it's not something that you necessarily even in that case do like consciously or maybe not even subconsciously. I don't know whether it's the storytelling or whether it is something like, okay, the pot broke. I have to go find clay because if I don't have this pot, I can't cook my food. And if I can't cook my food, I got to die. Like there are certain things that we can connect with and say, this is, it's really important for us to have this. Now what's interesting about that example is again, in Western society, like if your power goes out, you're probably not going to die. If your refrigerator, you know, conks out and all your food goes bad, you just go get more, right? Like there's very little, very few times, I suppose, uh, that something could happen to us where we die because of it. So so maybe, again, we don't have that same empathy on that, like, top level. In fact, maybe if you did live that life, maybe you don't want to read about it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that may be true. Well, and I, I, well, I'll give a silly example. So um, some years ago when I was working for a transportation company, there were TV shows on about truck drivers. The last thing <laughs> that I wanted to watch was something that connected too closely. And it wasn't like because I didn't care about the people or the characters or any of that stuff. It was when they struggled, that was too real. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right? Like, if you're a poor person, you probably don't want to read about other poor people struggling. Yeah. Yeah, well, and... And maybe I'm wrong about that. No, I think that that hits a very good note, because there have been Like, a person from Kenya might not want to read The Good Earth in the guy's pot, because maybe they're like going... (laughs) Right. You you can't see my my gestures of, of like... Oh, no! (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, to take a, a more, you know, modern example, we have a book at White Fire called My Mother's Chamomile, which is about a family, one of the family members is diagnosed with cancer. And um, so it's this very real struggle. It deals a lot with grief because the family owns a funeral home. Um, so this is like a ground zero grief novel. 
which is, and it's beautiful. It, it has that light of hope shining through it. And it's, it's wonderful. It's so wonderful. I made my book club read it. And five of the six of us adored it. And one person had just lost a family member to cancer. And it, they hated it because it was too real. It was too much what they were going through. And the last thing you want to do sometimes is read something that's right there. Um, now, Especially if it's hard. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple years later, they may have found it very healing, but which is, you know, where I was. I was a couple years after losing someone from cancer. But right in that moment, it was it was too much. And, you know, similarly, when when our kids were little, especially when our first child was like little still in a crib, I was reading a book in which they lost a baby to, you know, sudden infant death syndrome. And you go, nope, nope, nope. Oh, and I had to read it because I was doing an interview with her and for a review. And so I had to push myself through it. But I really didn't want to read that book because my baby was the age of this baby that died. And it just, you know, that's not where I want to go right now, you know. So that's definitely uh, because sometimes we don't need to we don't need to be made to empathize, right? (laughs) Right. We're already there. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that might actually explain why sometimes the best stories are the ones that are that make you suspend disbelief just a little bit harder. Right. Because the ones that are too on the nose, too true, too right now, maybe they touch people a little bit too close. Yeah, I think that's probably definitely true. Well, that's a sad thought. <laughs> well, luckily, there are a lot of books out there on a lot of topics. So when one book touches you too too hard, too close, it's too right there, you just move on to this other one. Um, but the the wonderful thing is a lot of times, I think, especially as, you know, people of faith, I really feel like God even leads us to the books we need at the time we need them. And I don't know how many times I've read a book and then not too long after a situation comes up in my life that mirrors it. And I've already gone through it emotionally just enough that I, I've i been prepared for it. Like my spirit has been prepared for it and my soul has been prepared for it. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point that I, so the the publishing industry the storytelling world in general it has this aversion of really pushing too far into into things that are are really important and i, I guess I, I think about the world that you know we're recording this in right now with um you know racial you know struggles and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and i think you know, if we would have been a little bit more bold in our storytelling, maybe we would have been more prepared. Hmm. Like there are examples of people doing it really well. Don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, please don't don't email me saying <laughs> I did that. You know, I took on the hard thing. But we tend to be a little bit risk averse, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of times looking at, you know, that particular cultural question right now and looking at the stories around us and the stories that are told on television in terms of fictional stories i think a lot of it almost assumes a solution that we haven't played out yet like you know we've talked before that we grew up just being taught equality well that's great except it's not real <laughs> so i grew up you know thinking equality was what we should not only what we should seek, but what we have accomplished. And then, you know, then there's this reality check of that's not how people live. So it, it's an interesting conundrum of what stories are we telling? Are we telling right. the and stories? What's really interesting, too, about that is sort of the closer you get 
from between the way things really are and the way you imagine things to be, sort of the sharper the contrast, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if you're dirt, dirt poor, and, you know, there's this idea that, you know, everybody can own a house and a car, and you're just, you know, struggling to put food on the table every day. You don't even think about that. I could have, you know, I could drive a Bentley type of world, right? Like <laughs> right. that doesn't even rate for you. But once you become middle class. Yeah, you, you need that just a couple steps above. Right. So, but it, it stings just a little bit more, right? Like, and I think this is one of the, and, you know, a, this is a place you can correct me if I'm wrong. But if you're uh, a middle class African-American person and you get slighted, it hurts just that little bit more because there's no reason you should be, right? Yeah. Like if, I don't know, if I'm trying to think of a, a reasonable example that's not stupid, but, you know, going back to like, I don't know, I'll, I'll end up having to cut all of this. <laughs> but if you, you know, you get passed over for a job or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And you see the person that gets it and... They're not more qualified than you. They're not more qualified than you. Maybe they're friends with the person who gave them the job or, you know, whatever reason. Like, you can look at that and think, well, geez, was that a slight? Should should I not have gotten that job? And, yeah, this is probably a really lousy example, so (laughs) I'm I'm doing a bad job of that. Or maybe, so another example, an example might be, you know, why did you get pulled over in a neighborhood? You know, I, we thought we were beyond this. Right. I'm a, you know, upper middle class person driving my Mercedes. I made a wrong turn. And all of a sudden someone wants to know why I'm in this neighborhood. Or made a right turn. A right turn. Correct turn. Well, that yeah. could be a good point. Yeah. I, yeah. I did something that got someone's attention is I guess all I meant by wrong. Yeah. Right. Like, it's not like you went into the wrong neighborhood. It was a. It was a, they don't think you belong in your own neighborhood. Yeah. Right. Which I, you know, I've, I've heard those stories. But yeah, because we're not in the 1860s anymore, and because we're not even in the 1960s anymore, there are higher expectations. Like, right. We should be beyond this, people. Right. So it's that just that much more irritating. It's that much more irksome. Is it that much worse? No. But yeah, kind of, right? <laughs> so, and I don't know how we fix that with empathy in storytelling, except to realize that that kind of thing does sort of happen to everyone. Mm-hmm. We all feel that. And when we recognize that some people have different experiences, like I guess this is this is what I'm thinking is, if you were to read a story about a person where they go, you know, almost, okay, a day in the life of Ivan Dasanovich, right? Like, what is a day in the life of, you know... Pick a person. Pick a person. Yeah. And you just go through a day in their life and you see what they're how they perceive the world and how it's kind of like yours. It's mostly like yours, but it's off, you know, eight degrees slanted and just how I think just showing that, right? Like maybe we don't need to go off too different, right? Like maybe it doesn't need to be too far. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, and I think that's what I would say even most books do. What most characters do is they're they're close, right? They're they're close enough that you can relate and they're just enough off that you can see something from a new perspective. Thank you for listening today as we talked about empathy in our series on what makes good stories that are worth reading. 
Join us next week when we discuss character and how authors make purposeful choices to create compelling ones. This podcast is sponsored by Read Whitefire. There you can read the first two chapters of any Whitefire Publishing Group company's books. And if you like what you read, they're available for purchase in print format, as well as electronic formats for all the most popular e-readers. Some books even have signed copies available. And if you're a listener of this podcast, there's a chance you're a good candidate for Platy People, our membership program for unique readers. For just $5 a month or $50 a year, Platy People members get to choose two free books per month, a free novella, 15% off all purchases, including gift certificates, and free shipping to U.S. addresses. Why choose ordinary when you can read extraordinary? Unexpressed as part of the Whitefire Podcast Network. Please visit whitefire.tv slash podcast to find other shows we know you're going to love.